Greetings, everyone. Court Whalen here. I am in location today with this recording. I'm actually just about to start a Monarch Butterfly photo adventure. It's fantastic. Looking forward to it. And I thought, you know, this is a good time to record a podcast as I'm waiting for things to kick off here. I have a new one, a new topic here that I'm really, uh, I think it's going to be a really great one for you guys to listen to. Hopefully you agree. Hopefully this is the reason you're listening to it at the moment. Um, It is my go-to camera mode and settings for all wildlife and landscape photography. This is going to go into things not just like my actual settings of aperture and shutter speed, but much more than that. Things like my drive mode, my color profile, raw, my autofocus settings, that sort of stuff. So yeah, without further ado, let's let's go ahead and kick things off here. Uh, my go-to camera mode and settings for all wildlife and landscape photography. So first off, we've got drive mode. And, you know, I should say at the very get-go of all this, there is a very real chance that the way that your camera make and model talks about these things is slightly different. Um, I think drive mode is pretty common in the camera industry, but sometimes Canon may say one thing and Nikon may use a different term like motor mode or something. But basically, you know, so with each of these terms, I'm going to talk about them so that even if the actual nomenclature, the actual term itself is is not the same from from camera manufacturer to camera manufacturer you're going to know what i'm talking about so drive mode is your drive motor it is your number of frames per second basically how many photos can your camera shoot per second um all at one time while you sort of hold that shutter button down and drive mode is a really important one for well it's important for wildlife and landscape uh, but kind of on two sides of the poles there. So um, it's it's more important for wildlife photography in the sense that you want a very high, fast drive mode. Most cameras will have uh, a bit of a spectrum starting from a single shot, and this is usually denoted by a small square or rectangle icon. And that is um, to really control how many photos you take on the, on the lower end. Um, so by default, most cameras are on single shot mode, meaning when you hit that shutter, you're going to be taking one photo at a time and you need to physically release your shutter button and push it again before it takes another shot. Now, the advantage here is for landscape photography, frankly, um, that, that way you're not taking more photos than you really want to. The reason is because if you put your camera in a high drive mode, uh, what we would sometimes term continuous or fast shutter speed mode, you're going to be seeing like three rectangles or squares stacked on top of one another. Sometimes they'll either be um, an L or an H next to those stacks. L usually meaning low, like low fast shutter. <laughs> it's kind of a weird counterintuitive thing, but but low meaning it's like it's going to be fast, but not super fast. And then H would be high. And that means this is the fastest, the most uh, photos you're going to be able to take per second with that camera. And sometimes it can take like 20 photos a second on some of these newer, fancier mirrorless cameras. And that's fantastic for wildlife photography, but it's not great for landscape photography because you're going to have a very sensitive trigger finger and you may take 11 photos of the exact same scene and you look down at your camera two minutes later and you wonder why you have no memory left. It's because you have too high of a drive mode on 
uh, for landscape photography. So even though you might think, well, shouldn't I just have it on the fastest drive mode possible? So that way, if anything comes across my scene, if any bird flies by or any wildlife comes by, I at least have that. Well, yes and no. If you know you're going out for the day or the morning and it's like wildlife, 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 then yeah, set it on a high drive mode right off the bat. So that way when you encounter uh, that critter or those critters, you're going to have the ability to photograph many, many frames per second, which frankly makes a huge difference in the resulting photos. Um, being able to capture small little nuanced behaviors, truly the difference between a snarl of a lion in milliseconds makes a very, very different photo. So I love having on uh, some sort of continuous high-speed drive mode for wildlife photography. However, for landscape photography, I am going to set it back to single shot or maybe just the sort of low continuous speed. It's really, really important to know how and when to toggle back and forth between those two, understanding that when you're doing wildlife, predominantly wildlife, so we're thinking, you know, photographing bears in Alaska or safari wildlife in Africa, high drive mode is paramount. Okay, so the next thing is white balance. And I'm going to preface this by saying that most folks um, are going to come up to me and say, you know, well, can't you just change white balance after the fact? And yes, that's absolutely the case. If you're shooting in RAW and you do photo editing, you can photograph in white balance after the fact. That's completely fine. Um, however, I find that you usually get a better photo, a better representation if you set white balance ahead of time, mainly because when you get on the computer and you make these drastic changes from, say, a shady white balance to a sunny white balance, that's going to change the color of the photo a lot. And you might view it as being a little bit too fake or you don't remember if that's exactly how you saw it in the moment where if you change it for the day or change it as you're taking photos and fine tune this white balance and these color settings, I think you're going to have a much better result. So, so anyway, white balance is something that I do think about. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, 80% of the time I'm photographing on either auto white balance with a little hint of warming filter on it. I'll get more into that in a second. Or a full warming filter effect, which would be a shady or a cloudy white balance. So let's zoom back real quick and talk briefly about what white balance is and the spectrum that we have at our disposal. So white balance is simply just the way that your color perceives pure white. Pure white looks very different if it's a white tablecloth under a tungsten bulb uh, inside a building versus if you're in the Maasai Mara and you have a white tablecloth under the golden African sun. It's a very different color temperature as we call it. So white balance is your camera's way of, of balancing that and not making everything look really, really blue or really, really yellow because of the color of the light or the sun or whatever sort of illumination you have going on. So you have a spectrum of blue to yellow, um, almost an orangish yellow. And basically, when you set your camera on auto, your camera is going to think and try its best to set it at somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think that's pretty good for most of the time. But I'm finding that when I'm in certain areas like African safaris or the exact opposite end of the spectrum, like, say, you know, Arctic photography, I'm going to want either a very warm look or a very cool look. So as a result, when I want to inject a little bit more warm tones into the photo, it's going to saturate those oranges and those yellows and those greens a little bit more. Uh, frankly, I think it saturates all colors a bit more. I'm going to have it on a shady or cloudy white balance. When I'm photographing in the Arctic, which is frankly the majority of my time, I am going, or sorry, uh, which frankly is the minority of my time, 
Uh, I'm going to set it on a daylight white balance, which injects a little more blue into the scene. I think it mutes the colors and creates that frosty, cool blue look. This is all very akin to back in the days of film when we would screw on warming or cooling filters. You hear the terminology is really quite similar. Um, so anyway, you know, my go-to settings uh, is going to depend on the region. Um, if I am in Africa or in a warm tropical place that I want to exude and portray that warmth, it's going to be a cloudy white balance setting. If I'm in a cool, arctic, frigid type environment, it's going to be on a daylight setting. If I'm really anywhere else, like for instance, I'm about to go photograph monarch butterflies in the Sierra Mountains of Mexico, um, I am going to put it on auto white balance. And fortunately, some of the newer cameras out there know that people have a bit of a propensity or a desire to have a slight warm tint to it, a little bit more yellow, because um, I think it brings out the colors better, is they have... A lot of cameras have two different auto white balance settings. It's sort of the normal back-in-the-day go-to auto white balance, which will sometimes be denoted as AWB, or an AWBW, which basically means an auto white balance warm. And I like it a lot. It's it's kind of like that perfect balance. I'm going to go in and mess with the white balance on the computer anyway, but I think it's a really, really great starting point. Okay, so color profile. This one can get a little bit contentious, and, and a lot of people don't even know where or what the color profile and these standard versus landscape versus vibrant settings. Um, it, it goes pretty way deep down into camera settings, and frankly, my message here is to frankly not worry about it. We're getting into really, really small, minute details, and unless you're a professional photographer doing a heck of a lot of stock photos or if you're uh, a professional photographer that does a lot of interior uh, clothing shoots or model shoots, or you're a wedding photographer that uses flash a lot, where you're getting really, really, and you need to replicate very specific colors. Think if, you, if you're a fashion photographer, you need to get that purple dress, the pretty exact shade and color purple that the designer is wanting. Then all these color profiles, um, they make a big difference. Or I should say they don't make a big difference, but they make enough of a difference that you need to pay attention to them. In our line of work with uh, outside nature photography, when the light is always changing and the colors are always changing, um, I just think this is one of these things that we have the luxury of not worrying too much about. That all being said, I usually have my camera set on the default that it comes, which is a standard color profile. Um, again, no harm, no foul if you want to go in and tinker with those, but I find that the default setting is just fine. I've definitely tinkered around and played around with them a lot in, in my work, and I've never noticed enough of a difference. And then sometimes when my camera resets or I get a new firmware and uh, those settings reset and I don't know that it's now changed, um, I don't even notice the difference in my photos until I go back in and play around with those settings again. So, you know, fortunately, one of those things you, you can not worry too much about when photographing. Okay, moving on now to, gosh, a big conversation, RAW versus JPEG and kind of photo quality. So very simply put, I photograph all my photos in RAW, just RAW, not RAW plus JPEG, um, and I shoot at the highest quality it'll let me. Some cameras, RAW is RAW. Sometimes they give you different levels of quality of RAW. Um, I'm always going to go for the biggest, the most, the highest quality. Memory is relatively inexpensive, and I just don't want to 
leave anything on the table. I want to make sure I get all the pixels, all the definition, all the quality as possible. If I'm ever shooting on JPEG, which is pretty rare, but sometimes I, I have, it might be for time-lapse settings or things like that where I, I just don't want to process each photo. Um, JPEG, same thing, highest quality possible, super fine, mega fine, whatever you want to, <laughs> whatever the camera says, it's just highest quality. Sometimes people ask me, you know, well, what is the advantage of shooting on RAW versus JPEG? And I actually have a, a separate podcast on that that I'd recommend you listen to for a deeper dive. But the basic gist is that if you plan on editing, I recommend shooting in RAW. If you do not like editing and you just want the photo to look as good as possible right out of the camera, JPEG is for you. If you shoot in RAW, you are going to use more memory and you are going to have to edit. You will have to process those photos to turn them into JPEGs before you can share them, before you can publish them, before you can send them anywhere. JPEG is the shareable, viewable file. RAW is like the behind the scenes, nitty gritty, uh, dirty details. Um, but it makes it really, really nice and editable. Um, the advantage of RAW plus JPEG, which a lot of cameras have now, is that if you're the kind of person that might get to editing, you know, in a couple months, but you really just need some photos to share with friends or to post online sooner than later, the great thing is that RAW plus JPEG doesn't take a ton more memory, and you have those JPEGs which are compressed, which are color corrected, kind of, and it's, it's, it's postable, it's shareable, it's something right off the bat. So there's not a huge downside. But if you're, you know, like me, and I, I'm going to edit my photos pretty much as soon as I get home from the trip, I have my whole albums kind of ready to go within a week or two. The JPEG is just an extra thing that's in the way. I, I don't need to take the, the plus JPEG. The raw is fine. I'm going to, I'm going to go through, I'm going to edit, I'm going to get all this stuff turned into JPEGs. And that's how I like it. All right, next is I, I, I was going to say autofocus settings, but really, let's say focus settings. Do you shoot on manual focus or autofocus? Um, golly, autofocus is getting so good today. I don't, I don't know why you would use manual focus um, for the majority of your time unless you're just shooting really specific subjects like macro photography 90% of the time. I would definitely advise letting autofocus do a lot of the work for you. My go-to is single point, dead middle of the frame autofocus. Um, meaning that I want the smallest autofocus point as possible so that way I can photograph that bird through the brush or that tiger through the brush um, and not have a large autofocus box where my camera might choose various things within the frame. I, I, I want to tell the camera what I want to focus on and that way even though it's in the dead middle of my frame, I can hold the shutter down halfway, it locks the focus and then I can recompose to get you know the rule of thirds to play in and the compositional elements that I want to play in. So single point autofocus, dead middle of the frame. Um, and yes, 100% do keep autofocus on 98% of the time. There are definitely applications where I manually focus for some certain macro techniques, for some certain um, uh, soaring wildlife techniques, uh, but again, the vast minority of the time. Um, now, it's, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that a lot of the new mirrorless cameras are having some really, really awesome advanced autofocus settings, particularly with um, focus tracking and like subject tracking. These things are amazing. Uh, I am in love with my Canon R5 because of that. I know that the Sony cameras and gosh, all the, all the mirrorless cameras have really great tracking focus abilities now. Um, highly recommend you get familiar with them and use them, but also just keep in mind that I, I don't have that as my default setting for autofocus. What you'll see is that the frame, although it's very intelligent for tracking subjects, you need to have a very dominant subject in your frame, 
Otherwise, you're really not going to be able to track anything. So for instance, I'm about to go photograph monarch butterflies. These butterflies are going to be flying and soaring everywhere. There's a hundred, if not a thousand subjects in my frame. Therefore, that tracking autofocus doesn't do any good because it's constantly bouncing around from subject to subject. Now, if you're on the Alaskan coast and you're photographing grizzlies and there's like one grizzly or two grizzlies, that tracking mode is really awesome. Birds in flight, this thing is brilliant for. So I'm still learning myself of where and when and the various applications for it. I can tell you it's genius. It's, it's a game changer. But I still have my single point center autofocus on the majority of my time. Okay, so the mode that I shoot on, so, you know, mode would be like aperture mode or shutter speed mode, manual, uh, P for program or full auto. Um, I, I'll give you sort of the story is that historically I have photographed on aperture priority mode um, because I know the depth of field. The shutter speed for most of the time is just a means to an end. I just want to freeze motion and I want to photograph as, as high as I can. And then I would set the ISO to, you know, my sort of minimum threshold where I think the ISO needs to be um, for the day to give me the shutter speed that it's going to give me. Um, I'm not going to go into any more detail on that because that is a thing of the past. I no longer do that. I now shoot on uh, full manual mode. However, I set auto ISO. And this thing, this is brilliant. I got to say, I love it. I advocate for it. I highly recommend it. What it allows me to do is I can set the aperture. I, I definitely know the depth of field that I want for each and every photo. Um, I can set the shutter speed. I also know the shutter speed I want for every photo. Even if I'm shooting a landscape shot with my 24 millimeter, I know that I need to have, you know, say at least a one over 80 or one over hundred shutter speed to get nice, crisp, frozen motion from the scene. Like if my hand's moving, if I'm shooting handheld, if I'm photographing with a big telephoto or fast moving wildlife, I know the shutter speed. Um, and yeah, if I did this for a while and I could quickly calculate in my head what I think the ISO ought to be, that's fine. But what this brilliant technique allows me to do is, is the camera chooses the ISO for me. And frankly, ISO, there's very little creativity involved in ISO. ISO is definitely a means to the end. Um, I just want the shot to take with a good exposure. And that's exactly what manual mode with auto ISO does. Um, in addition, it allows me to very quickly and easily increase or decrease the amount of light in my camera with my exposure meter. Now you could do the same thing if you were just to have an actual ISO program and go up or down, it's sort of similar, but I'm very, very used to over the years using this exposure meter of plus one, minus one, plus two, minus two to increase or decrease the amount of light coming in. And essentially I can still do that and the camera decides in the ISO that it needs given the aperture and shutter speed I dial into the camera. So I, I cannot praise this technique high enough. I, I can photograph faster. I'm finding that it's given me lower ISOs than I would have otherwise chosen, which gives me a better photo in the end. It's awesome. So manual mode, auto ISO, that is my go-to setting for all wildlife and landscape photography. So let's, let's do a dive into the actual settings that I advise for wildlife and landscape photography, two different sets there. So with wildlife photography, there are, you know, kind of a couple different approaches. I think the classic approach is going to be the shallow depth of field portraiture look, and I have a, a deeper dive on wildlife portraits. But the gist is, is that I want to prioritize my camera for a shallow depth of field. I want to prioritize for a low F number. That way, it's going to get the animal in, in crisp focus, but the background blurred. That's going to separate the wildlife from the background. The blur in the background makes the sharp wildlife look even sharper. So low F numbers. I'm thinking F4.5, F5.6, maybe F7.1, F8. Definitely nothing more than F8 for this style of photography. 
Uh, the shutter speed is a means to an end. I, I don't I don't really care. I'm not trying to be creative. I just want to shoot fast enough to freeze the motion. Um, so I'm kind of making judgments based on the lens that I have. There's a, a rule out there called the inverse focal length rule that if you're shooting with a 300 millimeter lens uh, to, to freeze your hand movement, you should be shooting at least one over 300th of a second. Now, this is before image stabilization days. So when you when you have like a two or a three stop image stabilizer, you can actually reduce that quite a bit. Nevertheless, I, you know, especially with wildlife, wildlife is moving or it can move. So shooting in that range of one over 250, one over 320, one over 500th of a second is pretty normal for me, unless I'm being pushed to the limits because of very, very low light. But yeah, I'm trying to freeze motion, even though I have a lot of image stabilization, I want to freeze the wildlife movement too. So one over 320, one over 500 is my go-to starting point. That way, if I do need to adjust, I'm not adjusting by much. I'm going up to one over 800 or one over 1,000 if the wildlife is indeed moving. If I'm really low light, I'm adjusting from one over 320 down to one over 200 or one over 160. Um, anything less than one over 160 or one over 80, and I don't care what image stabilization you have with a big you know, 400, 500 millimeter lens, you need that shutter speed. So, so that's kind of my general uh, realm there. Aperture is going to be around 5.6. Um, and then shutter speeds me about one over 320. And then again, based on my previous technique, auto ISO. Now, the other type of wildlife photography that I'm really, really into is wildlife in landscape. So it's a, it's a wildlife shot, but it's featuring the landscape. And this is where you're kind of pushing the depth of field a little bit more and, and starting more at an F8 and maybe going even to an F11. This is where a bit of creative control comes in and, and, you have to ask yourself, do you want the whole scene in focus? Do you want to have the background blurred? What does the scene look like? Do you have a tree in the foreground with the orangutan, with the Danim Valley rainforest in the background? Or are you photographing a lion in the Maasai Mara where you want everything in focus? It's, it's really, really sight and scene dependent. So um, my general rule of thumb here for a wildlife in landscape shot, where it's still a wildlife shot, but you're getting the landscape, you know, you're zooming out. You're letting the animal be part of the landscape. You're showcasing the habitat that it lives in. Is I'm usually at an F or 11, uh, F8 or F11. Uh, the other benefit here is that I, I'm probably not going to have to shoot quite as fast on my shutter speed. You know, 1 over 500 is probably unnecessary. 1 over 320 is still a really good starting point. Um, but if, if I'm on a tripod or if I'm able to study that camera a little bit on a railing, because the animal is likely much smaller in my scene, because it's part of the landscape, it's part of this entire uh, scene before me, any sort of slight movement, you know, uh, a movement of its ear is going to reflect so much less in the scene that I can shoot at 1 over 250, 1 over 200. Nevertheless, I'm probably going to start at 1 over 320 because it's a pretty good starting point for my wildlife shots. So that's a perfect bridge into classic landscape photography. And landscape photography, for the most part, is denoted by a big depth of field. You know, you, you want to have that definition. You want the foreground in focus. You want the background in focus. To intentionally blur the background of a landscape shot, you're getting into pretty artsy realm, which I advocate for. I highly recommend it, but it's certainly not the go-to. It's, it's, that's the exception and not the rule. Maybe 10% of the time you're going to do that with very specific types of scenes and setups. So... Landscape shots, you know, I'm usually using my 24 millimeter, 24 to 105. 
I might be zooming in and cropping so that I, I get the photo exactly as I want, framing the mountain or the meadow or whatever is in there. Um, but I'm shooting probably at something like a 1 over 160 as a good go-to. Um, even though you can push that a bit lower and, and you know, a 1 over 80 with image stabilization of a landscape is not crazy. Um, for the most part, I, I, I want to just ensure a crisp shot because even a slight blur to a landscape shot across the entire frame really ruins the photo. So I want to take a little bit faster than I may need. So 1 over 160, and my go-to is F8. I start at F8. I ideally would like to get to F11. I rarely go above F11 because of uh, a diffraction issue where you actually might push pixels out of the frame if you go to F16. So F11 is usually great for the, the vast majority of the time. There's almost no need to go to F16 and unless you're trying to get that starburst effect where you, the sun has these beautiful uh, rays coming out of it, and then you need to go to like an F22. So there are times I do that, but most of the time F11, 1 over 160, and again, auto ISO. But one thing that I'm cognizantly looking at as I'm taking these shots and deciding on 1 over 160 or deciding on F8 or F11 is the ISO that the camera is giving me. If I'm really pushing it and I'm in challenging lighting scenarios and it's giving me you know, ISO 1600, ISO 3200, I might say, you know what? I don't think I need F11 for this shot. I'm okay with F8 because I'd rather that ISO 3200 go down to 1600 and save me that noise and grain. Remember, dropping down from F11 to F8 is one full stop, and that would allow my camera to go from ISO 3200 to 1600. Yeah. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So uh, there are times, you know, when you want to be a little bit creative and you might use an f5.6 or, you know, at, at some of these wider angle lenses, you can get to 2.8 or f4 pretty pretty well, pretty easily. And I'm not going to instruct too much on those because it's really, a, yeah, you have to be there sort of thing. You have to be in front of the scene and say, oh, yeah, the way that that flower is in the foreground. And, and if you could blur out those trees in the background, that'd be really, really nice. But again, exception and not the rule. So there you go, folks, my go-to camera mode and settings, all sorts of different things for how I set my camera up before any day, any trip with nature, wildlife, and landscape photography. I hope you learned something. I hope some of this is new to you. Uh, some of it may be uh, old. Some of it may be new and complex. But just know that I have other podcasts out there that refer to some of the things I talked about in here, particularly the RAW versus JPEG and white balance and some of the exact camera settings for wildlife portraiture. So be sure to give the rest of uh, my albums a look. And uh, I thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>